Hey, Mark. Hey, Katie. Hey, you want to do a podcast? Yeah. Sweet. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the Unforget Yourself Show, where we use the power of woo and the proof of science to help you identify your blind spots, get over your own bullshit, <gasps> so that you can do the fucking thing you actually want to do. Absolutely. I'm Mark. And I'm Katie. And we're the founders of Unforget Yourself and the creators of the Unforget Yourself system. Look, being a business owner is tough. Yeah. With vulnerability and with humor, mm-hmm. we'll be sharing with you the real stories behind the success of those brave and crazy enough to start their own business and to show you that you're not alone. You're not. Well, from the accidental entrepreneur to the laser-focused CEO, we have honest conversations about how they got to where they are today. We talk about the challenges that they faced and what they're currently dealing with in real time on their roller coaster journey. Along the way, we want to show you that it's, it's you. You are the most important asset in your business. Yeah, you are. So let's cut the bullshit and start the show. Enjoy. Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. So today we have with us Sean Kozowski of Mind the Gap Consulting. It's a small consulting practice that helps nonprofit leaders and nonprofit organizations raise money to build boards and to transform their leaders. And they do it through executive coaching, consulting packages, and through courses. Hey, Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk about this today. Awesome. Well, let's get straight into it. Can you expand a bit more on you know where you are with your business today and the kind of people that you love to work with? It's funny. I was just um, you know yesterday thinking a lot about who is my ideal client. A number of other business leaders who I who I who I consume their information are always like, you need to figure out who your ideal client is, right? So I was just thinking about this question. I love working with small nonprofits. The vast majority, probably ninety to ninety five percent of small nonprofits in the United States are under two million dollars, under a million dollars, and that's like you know, so it's like a large universe. But that's my sweet spot: is organizations under two million, really small. I understand, and they understand sort of like the 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 challenges of of making a dime do $100 worth of work. They're really resource strapped. So the level of innovation, the level of entrepreneurship that it requires to run a small nonprofit is powerful. So those are the most energizing clients because they do anything I tell them to. They're like, please just tell us exactly what to do. And please I was just help me, right? Just, yeah, exactly. Just tell me. And they, they absorb things like a sponge. They don't always have the budget to implement everything we want to do, but they are just like taking notes. They are completely willing to follow, follow my lead. Um, and I always say that nonprofit leaders are entrepreneurs because we make something out of nothing every day. And we are un- we are un- not held back by what we don't have today to envision something. We're like inventors and entrepreneurs because we're creating something out of nothing every day. And I've spent my life in nonprofit leaders. So my, my ideal client who I actually serve tends to be small nonprofit leaders or people who are brand new to nonprofit leadership, literally folks who have left huge corporations. Uh, and they want to run a nonprofit because they're impacted by a particular disease or something horrible happened in their family and they've been tapped to run some small foundation. Um, they'll come to me to, to get executive director training, how to run a nonprofit. So those are my ideal clients or the, the executive directors out there or the really small nonprofits who are just trying to make a real difference either locally or nationally. So with nonprofits, it feels like there's more of an adventure to it. There's more of a vision. There's more of a purpose that they're sort of gunning towards. Um, Is that what you help to, um, one, encourage and also help manage so they can put the focus on exactly where they need to at the stage and wherever they are? 
Yeah, the nonprofit sector is really a strange sector in the sense that you're, you're it's frowned upon and, and to, to pay your board members. So you have this really weird structure that you have these volunteers who are not experts running the place. And so um, and we're motivated by impact, not profit. And that is why it, 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 everyone comes because of the passion and the results and the people, but they're not there because their shareholder price or stock price is going to go up, right? They're there for very, very different reasons. And in my mind, I get to help people understand, stop spinning your wheels, stop, you know, you may not, you may have started this place out of passion, but you're going to need to find the resources to realize your mission. And so uh, the spinning their wheels, not really getting um, a lot of traction, uh, not really understanding how to craft their pitch or to understand how to prospect and tailor one or two or three fundraising, uh, you know, avenues, revenue streams for their organization, just helping them really optimize and get smarter about what they're going to do. Um, most organizations are really trying to make the world a better place. They're not soccer clubs or book clubs that are just fads or, or just like hobbies. They're, they're really organizations trying to change the world and they have very little time to use tactics that fail or backfire. And so I want them to make sure that they're um, just set up for success. Oh, let's tap on that. So there's a very real fear within the nonprofit sector that's, you know, we don't have time to waste. We don't have that many shots at this. We need to make sure what we use works. We need to make sure we are efficient and effective where we, we position our time, correct? Yeah, our donors and stakeholders are expecting for us to be the smartest people in the room in terms of how to use these dollars, that we're staying on top of industry trends. I just came out of climate change for four years, and that is, that is literally life or death. It is there are there's you know wildfires and landslides and ice melt. There are people dying, islands sinking. It is a life or death situation all over this world. Like incalculable human suffering if we do not get climate change right. So using the right language, connecting with voters at the right level, it, it, it matters. And whether you're trying to fight disease or fight climate change or trying to build a community garden, there's something that you're actually motivated by. And, we, and the more time you waste, the less impact you're going to have. And you're losing time and you're losing traction. So you, you do need to use the best possible information available to, to you know pull funding out of the community to support this thing that everyone claims that they'll support so you do have limited time it is a concern yeah well shit that's an awful lot of pressure to have on um the board members to have on the entrepreneurs who are going into the nonprofit world that's a lot of responsibility so from the the entrepreneur the business owner from the, the person at the top what do you see time and time again from their perspective that that whether it could be a, a false belief or a story they have to remove or a challenge that you see time and time again that they have to work through. Well, one of the biggest things I think is mindset issues. I always talk about these three areas that I help executive directors with, which is mindset, tool set, and skill set, right? So the mindset is imposter syndrome and isolation. The tool set is people, they have all this passion, but they don't have the right device or the right handout or the right instrument to go do the thing, right? Um, and then the skill set, they just need to practice, um, you know, like I'm nervous about asking my friend for money. Well, let me just show you how simple this is, right? But the mindset issue is one of the biggest ones because um, a lot of folks who the imposter syndrome is everywhere, but in nonprofits, there is sort of like a, I'm not even from the community that I'm serving. I'm not a cancer survivor. So why do I belong here? Or 
allies who fight for you know lgbtq rights straight people in our movement that are like do i even belong here like imposter syndrome from the role not just from am i a good leader so there's mm. people who want to join certain fights might want to take a back seat because they're not directly impacted by the cause or i'm not an immigrant should i actually be on the front lines of this immigration organization right so sometimes talking to people about this guilt that they have about not feeling like they represent the cause that they're fighting for and then leadership issues too uh really people are like i'm not qualified to run a nonprofit, we're one of the sectors that will take anyone from anywhere who has good judgment, good skills, and are willing to work hard. We'll take corporate leaders. We'll take folks who have worked at, at, at Safeway, right? You'd show that you are committed and you're going to use good judgment. We will put you in place in any, in any nonprofit. The, the backgrounds of people that end up in nonprofits is so varied. So just convincing them you are in the right spot. You are the leader we've been hoping, to, hoping for. That is beautiful. I love the way you've put that. It's about, it doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from. Um, I mean, we talk with startups, we talk with billionaires. Not one person doesn't have some level of imposter syndrome, some level of doubt or fear that goes on. I mean, at different levels, but we all have it. We all have a position where that's triggered. Absolutely. It's always going to happen because that never goes away. So, the fact that you see it time and time again with who am I, why should I be here? Um, it's a tough thing to overcome because that voice, oh, it doesn't go away easily. So one thing I see time and time again is we we teach and help people with things that either we need at a certain level or, oh my gosh, we have been through and we have sought and went after it. So um, if I could be as open to ask you, where is your impost syndrome? Where was your fear and doubt? Where did that come in with your, with your professional life? I think for me, I learned how to run nonprofits by watching it be done wrong. I knew early on that I wanted to work in nonprofits. I started working very young in nonprofits at 16, got a full-time job, you know, right out of college. And so I saw my boss and best friend was a brilliant tactical programmatic media genius. However, he wasn't the best executive director. He, no one had job descriptions. He wasn't fundraising. Uh, meet, start, meetings didn't start on time or end on time. From a management perspective, I watched things just kind of falling apart. I knew that whenever I became an executive director, I would have to step out of the program role, the sexy role, the, the, the lobbying, the rallies, the, all that stuff, step back and say, I, I have to create the conditions for this whole thing to succeed. So it's a different level of leadership. Do I have what it takes? Do I understand how to run financial statements? Do I understand the stress of not being able to raise enough money to pay my staff every night? I have to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars a month just to keep the place open. You know, in a nonprofit, we don't lay people off. Like not unless you're like a really giant nonprofit, you typically rarely have like layoffs, right? So mm -hmm. the do I have what it takes to be a good leader? And then also just knowing your blind spots. It sounds really kind of like obvious, but I don't know what I don't know yet. You won't know until you start showing up in your leadership, whether you're accidentally causing a microaggression or accidentally stepping over people's ideas or how do I show up in this role? Do I have the instinct and the self-awareness to grow? And those are some of the things that I struggled with early on. I still, I still constantly have to challenge myself to be um, you know, to, to learn about how I learn and to, and to, you know, check my own assumptions about my own leadership. Learn about how you learn. Now there's a phrase. I love that. We can, as entrepreneurs, business owners get so caught up with the, the recalibration as we call it, the continuous learning and seeking something new, something different, a better way, rather than implementing what we 
we already have. Um, yeah, it's, it's actually called it's called double loop learning. It's like written in like when you get your master's degree in in MBA or MPA, which I did, you'll you'll begin learning about double loop learning. So not just like oh we did a thing, let's evaluate the thing. It's about stepping back and saying how did the meeting even go where we decided the thing. Have we set into motion things that undermine other things that we care about? Like just like learning about how you learn and, and thinking yeah. about how you think can can catch bias. It can catch bigotry. It can catch un, unintended consequences of, of who was not even in the room. So yeah, double loop learning is something at the end of every meeting where decisions are made, I try to do a double loop with the team where we ask ourselves, how did this meeting even go? Let's take three minutes to just say, can these run better? Is our decision-making product? process um, impaired and I try to double loop myself all the time can you give an example of where you used that and you caught something that was so blatantly obvious however in the moment it's just slipped through yeah, we did a uh, we had a staff meeting at an organization I was with where at the very end we were using double loop principally for a diversity, equity, and inclusion mindset. So at the end of every meeting where there were decisions, one of our biggest implementation things was creating a double loop moment at the end of every meeting where you not only ask who does what by when, did we assign anything in this meeting and forget to give a who does what by when to WWW. But we also said, have we pushed anything into motion during this meeting that undermines our diversity, equity, and inclusion goals? And someone on the team was like, yeah, I think that actually we just assigned something to a younger woman of color on the team. She typically gets new assignments. And so that might be a pattern that we're noticing. And other folks were like, that's actually their role. Like the role they were hired for was to catch those exact things. But we brought it up. Like, is there an unfair level of um, you know, assignments going on. And so like the white guys were taking some things and like the women were taking, sometimes people taking minutes during meetings, it's more common for a woman of color to either be asked or to offer to take minutes. And that can be really impairing to the meeting. So sometimes people will catch if those things are sort of happening during a double loop and it creates space for those that are quieter during the meeting to say, I just saw something that I'm not sure I like, right? So that's just one example of like whether assignments were going to someone, we were, we were able to check that assumption, but it was just a good moment to keep thinking about how meetings were running. Yeah, how do you breed that confidence to allow someone to speak up with, you know, there's something that I saw, or again, back to imposter, who am I to say this when it's like, I'm not quite sure, but I feel I can speak this. How do you, you know, grow that, that kind of culture? It's ongoing. There's no one thing you can do or, or one t tone you can set where it's like one and done. I will say that it is a constant practice as an executive director of nonprofits to basically create the conditions where people can trust you. That might be have barriers because I'm a cis white guy, even though I'm gay. Uh, but I constantly am telling staff, like, I am not the person, I am not the boss that you can't bring something to. So if you don't want to call me out or someone out during a meeting, then please call me out in private um, or if I'm doing something. So but I, I have told uh, when I started as a white male leader of this climate organization, I told um, a woman of color on our staff who was doing all of the diversity, equity and inclusion work. I said, this is not your job anymore. Like it is my job as the leader to do this. And this shouldn't be assigned to a person of color to do the diversity work. Like I, this has to come from the top down. And me just saying that to the team like opened up a sense that this white guy is probably actually cares about this, right? He actually understands his role as a leader on this issue. So it's not to grandstand, but it is like constantly doing that. When COVID hit, I told my staff, we, when the first couple of weeks happened with COVID, we had a poll, we were the leading training organization in the climate space in the United States. We had to shut down all in-person trainings across the country, which is what we're funded to do. 
And everyone was, you could tell people are burning out, they had families impacted, people mm-hmm. with pre-existing conditions. This is like March, 2020. Some folks have family members working on the front lines of like factories or you know supermarkets where they have to show up every day. And I told everyone, I don't need you at peak productivity right now. I understand that the world is scary. I know we're all stressed out and whatever is happening in your personal life, I don't need you at peak productivity. Take a rest, take a beat. If you need something from me, ask. So just setting a tone, ongoing, regularly checking in with your team. And the last thing I'll say, which is something I'm so proud of our team for asking for, we created a feedback and accountability system there. So we actually created a document where everyone can list how they like getting feedback. So I don't like being called out or called in. I like you to privately message me, hey, there's this thing, you're not doing your assignments on time, or actually you did this thing I really don't like. So we share with each other how we like receiving feedback so that we can grow and do better. But it takes each of us sharing how we like feedback so we don't like accidentally um, um, back someone into a corner or make them feel unsafe uh, because of prior work experiences or maybe they're neurodivergent and being put on the spot is just like can make them shut down. So we just have these different ways of asking people how they like feedback. Yeah, everyone has their own triggers. Everyone has their own experiences. Um, we can go on to talk about the love languages and the, the love languages in work. It's a very real thing that is is so easily overlooked, but understanding, that's why the first step with everything unforget yourself is awareness. What you just said about there with the, you know, the double loop learning, yes, absolutely, it's just catching the awareness. And once you have the awareness, oh, you get to choose what to do with it. So I love the whole culture that you are continuing to create. And I assume by association, you get to share this with the the nonprofits that you help to continue to move, to build in that same way. So practicing exactly what you preach, how you do it, I think is that level of integrity is, um, it's essential for a, a really growing business. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's, uh, I'm a small shop right now just for myself, but I would like to think that I've created um, a situation where any of my vendors or people that I'm working with also that we have a mutual respect. Even if someone works for me, we treat each other like peers. If someone's my virtual assistant, it doesn't mean that they are to be treated like an assistant. They are a business owner in their own mindset. They are, they have chosen to organize their lives to be in support of another entrepreneur. So we, we, we talk to each other like peers. Uh, and even though we're doing business, it's also we're friendly and we're respectful to each other. We all have a role to play. Nice. So let's talk about sort of your role because it can be really tough to manage all these emotions and feelings and, and purposes and you know, the different layers that comes with that. How has it been for you and what challenges do you face as you go through building your own business? I think that the, the biggest competing thing is uh, for me, like, as I sort of mentioned at the top is prioritization. And like, from an emotional point of view, it is a sense of overwhelm. There can be times if you don't have a good system for organizing the work, it can feel like just too much. And I don't suffer from anxiety. I don't have anxiety issues. I, I go through stress like anyone else, but I do have a mindfulness practice and a meditation practice that can help center me. So for me, meditation and mindfulness have saved my career and saved my life. I don't even have a daily practice of it, but when I almost burned out at age 26 in this movement for a while, I found some like meditation retreat where there was a scholarship for nonprofit leaders to go on this meditation retreat. And it gave me the tools to power my activism for the, for the next 20 years. And I'm still here at 46 
uh, 20 years after that near burnout experience because I learned how to slow down my mind. I learned how to breathe. I learned how to just put it all in focus and to not get all caught up in the overwhelm. And mm. I totally understand how small nonprofits feel uh, because there's just too much work. There's just, you could do a thousand things. Your funders are telling you one thing. Oh, I really want my donation page to be more attractive. There's all these rabbit holes you could go down, but you really just got to remember the thing, right? And just keep, just do a few things well instead of 20 things poorly. And um, the overwhelm as a business owner uh, that there's a growing list of things to do. And it's okay to look at that and say, it's okay. It's okay if these things don't get done. I will do the pieces I can do in the right strategic order. But overwhelm, I think, is a, is a thing that people uh, struggle to talk about because they, it makes it feel like they don't have the tools to understand or organize the work. Um, mm -hmm. But overwhelm is a, is a, or for some people, they call it anxiety, a sense that they're just out of control and can't function given too much in, you know, input um, uh, is, is something I struggle with too, which is the overwhelm. Mm. So let's put one thing to bed here. I mean, just because we all have the right tools and the tactics to overcome this, and maybe it does bring us back down, it's still, it can be so tough to use those in the right moment to catch ourselves in the moment when we need it the most. So just because we have them, everyone has them. I mean, you've got free resource all over the internet of all the life-changing tools and tactics. It's not just enough to have them. It's how to catch yourself. It's how to be guided through this and also have that forgiveness that, yeah, I messed up. Yes, I didn't do my mindfulness practice. Yes, I didn't do this in a way that I know I should because we're all guilty of this. So you have a, a challenge with prioritizing, with understanding exactly what you should be doing. I love the way this mirrors what you help your clients with because that is exactly at a different level what you help your clients to do. So it's fascinating seeing that you know we we teach we help exactly what we need the most so when you become overwhelmed when it all gets too much for you what are the triggers that start that off do you know um, it's usually Monday mornings. So I have I have organized my I try to organize my week in such a way that I don't have meetings on Monday. Mm -hmm. So there's one day of the week that actually there's no meetings because Monday is such a day where the email inbox is full, the number of things on my mind that I need to either set in motion or start or do yeah. or respond to. So Mondays, the more interruptions you have, the more you can't get things done. And so each time you task switch or multitask, you're actually defeating your own effectiveness. So I try to have one day where I can work for a good seven or eight hours all day to just plow through all sorts of stuff. And I find that it gets my whole week working well. But if I head into a Monday morning and I feel like things aren't organized well, if I don't know what's about to happen, uh, I get a little that overwhelmed. So in order to reduce mm -hmm. that, I even have my calendar mapped out now. So all the, all the things that I can't let drop, I can't, some things are in my task software. Some things are in my calendar. Like, okay, it's the second Monday of the month. Time to think about content. It's the second Thursday of the month. It's time to think about um, your affiliates and, and, you know, touching them and making sure that they're mm -hmm. happy so that I have those things baked into my calendar. So they don't leave. If they're in my head, they're going to keep me up at night. So I need to write them down somewhere and look at them regularly. And that's how I defeat the overwhelm is I'm like, I have a system. It just, and, and then as you just sort of mentioned, 
being gentle with ourselves. You know, it's like everyone messes up. We mess up every day. This is part of the imposter syndrome thing. Um, you know, I think that just like being okay with the ambiguity, it's okay to not have all the answers. Ambiguity is perfectly fine. It's okay to fail. You want to fail forward. So if you fail, you at least learn from it. Uh, but you definitely don't have to have all the answers. You will make mistakes. You will spend money on things accidentally or bought software that was more than you need. People do it all the time. Just be okay with yourself and smile. Yeah, and I love all that. It's such great advice. But we we all know the right things to do. You, you're saying all the right words. You know what you should be doing. You know how to manage yourself. You know what to, to say to yourself. But again, in the moments, oh my gosh, isn't it tough? Yep. Yeah, it is. When you're actually living in it, if you don't, if you, um, yeah, I don't always follow my own principles when I am hurried or rushed. I'm trying to, with my business, not fall prey to the same patterns that I know for 20 years have plagued me, which is moving too fast. Uh, every 360 I've done, every time I've worked with a coach, uh, every time I've gotten feedback from my staff, it's always like this error or this thing you did, or when you were flip or whatever, almost always came down to me moving too fast. So uh, the more I can slow down, use my mindfulness practice, think about how I'm thinking and just like gut checking how things are working, the more I can make fewer errors and the more I can uh, be more thoughtful in, in how I'm running my business. Mm -hmm. When's the last time you, you, you made that reaction rather than pausing and actually working through something? Um, oh, every day, like yesterday, like I am super fast at replying to emails. So I usually, I try, I'm an inbox zero person. Yep. So I really usually have less than 10 emails in my inbox at any given point in time. And part of that strategy is if I can respond to something very quickly, I just will. Um, and every now and then that can get me into some trouble because I, I read the email that I'm responding to a little too quickly, missed a word. So I'll ask a question of someone that they already answered in the email, like what time is this meeting going to be? And I just didn't, my eyes didn't catch it in this long email they wrote or something because I'm moving too fast. Things are time consuming. So it's understandable to not read some of someone's block email of all this text, right? So every now and then I'll have to just catch myself and say, wait, you're going to cause more work for each person if you don't read this email more carefully, you know, so I can just fire off something. Okay, great. Sure. I'm all in. What time is this thing? Well, it was already answered. So every day on email, I feel like, um, responding to people requires me just like slowing down. It's so easy to miss a word or to reread an email and read it in a completely different tone. It's so, so easy. But yep. what, what is it, what's underlying there that you are trying to resolve? What is underlying that you were an, a need that you're trying to get met or a fear that you're trying to remove? What drove you to reply so quickly? Um, getting, I literally think there is a psychological thing that I have. And I think other, I don't think, I think I'm type A, other people that are high performers or type A, or just like they're high producers might have this thing also, which is, I literally think of everything as a checklist. And the more I can check things off of the list, then it's like a dopamine hit, right? So I will put things on a list of things. If I have a list of things to do today, and then I got something done that wasn't on the list, I will add it to the list just to cross it off. <laughs> I think that that is... And I literally, if I'm working from a piece of paper, I will tear the piece of paper to make it smaller. Like literally, this is like craziness, right? But um, I feel like just making a list smaller or just you know, like finishing finishing something gives me like a dopamine hit. So uh, being able to reply to an email and send it out just makes it feel like there's one less thing on the list. It literally feels productive. And so 
I have to resist that dopamine thing that I'm seeking, which is just closing out the task and saying, it's okay. It's okay if that sits there and I wait a day before I respond to like give the best possible answer. It's a deeply unfulfilling, uh, but a good practice in terms of uh, impulse control. <laughs> deeply unfulfilling, I love that. What, what happens if your checklists aren't ticked? What happens if there are things that you, you can't get around to? How does that really impact you? That's when the overwhelm comes. That's when it, when you start looking at all of the lists and the lists of lists that you've got and you start feeling like there's just too much to do and there's no way I'm going to get any of this done. You can feel some people will have like a sinking feeling or for me, it just feels like there's just way too many things. If there's too many deadlines on the same day or if there's just too many things on the list. So every now and then I literally make a practice of going through my to-do lists and scrapping like 20% of them and just deciding what was just a good idea that day when I saved that bookmark of that article. I'm never going to get to it. Just toss it. You know, when can I actually just put things in a, a later date file? Um, mm -hmm. But it's overwhelmed. It's the sense that you start freezing up. Like, I don't even know what to do next. So I'm just going to go for a walk, you know, or something. So that's the that's Is that where this then spills into your personal life? Because you have those to-dos, you have those those open tabs in your brain let's call it that that don't go away so you miss uh, you know conversations with your husband you miss um, things that you want to be doing you miss something beautiful going on in the world because oh my gosh i'm thinking about this thing that i should have done i could do did i do right all those kind of things is that accurate yes because my mindfulness practice about living in the moment like each moment is already gone like the, the moment that I'm living in right now, it's gone. It'll never come back. I only get one moment every time that one moment comes. So as someone who believes in mindfulness, like living in the moment, if I'm always thinking about what I'm doing in an hour or tomorrow, I'm not living in this moment and I'm not happy in this moment. So I have to constantly bring myself to this moment and to this breath and to this reminding myself, you know, there's joy all around my dog, my dog, Harry, who I wasn't able to bring on the podcast today. Um, reminds me every day about play. He just wants to play, play, play. And he has no job. He has no responsibilities. He just wants to play. And he reminds me when I look at him that play and taking a break every now and then and just going to play with him is actually like, it is good. And so it can feel like, ah, that means I'm not getting something done. And when I started my um, business full-time in January, it made a commitment that every day I would play with Harry. So he's just, a, when I when he's around and he's at home, I he reminds me to play. <laughs> That's that's amazing. We've got a little wiener dog called Twix. And you know, the amount of times I yeah, be more Twix, be more Twix. He is just content and life is freaking amazing. It's a great old time. He loves everything. He's just happy. It's like, yeah, we need to be more Twix, be more Harry, bring more play. And this is where the law of polarity comes into to everything that we teach. Have more play rather than hustle. Just move that slider a bit more over. Have more appreciation rather than worry and concern and need. So and what slide is, go on, sorry. Yeah, I was gonna say there's, there's, there's evidence that starting your day with gratitude actually helps your brain. So one of my journals that I work with every day is starting the day with like that happiness that your dog, like that Twix has, just like really just counting, not your blessings, but like your, your, your gratitude. So every day I write out one, and it, they can never repeat themselves, but like a new gratitude, a new thing that you just, you, you just uh, are appreciative for in your life. And it could be like, I love the fact that I'm in New York and I have options. I love the fact that I have healthcare. I love the fact that I have restaurants within a walking proximity to me. Like there's, there's abundance of gratitude or like, I love technology. I love the things I can do every day to stay in touch with people. Gratitude mm -hmm. every day, kind of like what you were just talking about is really, really important to staying grounded. 
I love that. Beautiful. That's great advice for, for anyone out there to, to cope with this, these Monday mornings and the stresses that ultimately comes being an entrepreneur, becoming a, a CEO, becoming the leader of your, of your business that you know you, you, you should be and you want to be. So, hey, Sean, thank you so much for sharing your journey, sharing your advice and for, for playing along today. Thank you for having me. So, so welcome. Hey, if people want to find out more about you and how you can help them with their nonprofits, where can they find you? Folks should go to nonprofitfixer.com, which is my website. Simple enough. There you go. Everyone check it out. And Sean, again, thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, Katie. Yeah, Mark? Want to do an outro? I sure do. Sweet. Hey, thank you so, so much for listening and making it to the end. Yay, you. So what happens next? Uh, we ask them the things that podcasters are supposed to ask at the end of an episode. Can you please rate, review, download? Subscribe. Mm. Yeah. But why is it important? Because that's how our podcast gets noticed. That's how people find us. It is, and we want all their earballs. <laughs> all the earballs all over the place. We do. Nice. Yeah, so please do all those things. We'll be ever so grateful. And then more people hear your beautiful voice. Or yours. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See you next time. Bye.